Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you enjoy binge-watching the best TV shows and love hearing from the actors and showrunners who make them happen, then subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our Hollywood reporters take you behind the scenes of the year's most anticipated projects, the industry's biggest moves, and the hardest-fought awards races. From The Crown to The Real Housewives, we've got the inside scoop. As a special thank you to our still-watching audience, we're offering 15% off a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair. Visit VanityFair.com today and use promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off a yearly digital subscription to everything you want. Hello and welcome to the finale episode of Still Watching Mrs. America. I'm Vanity Fair senior writer Joanna Robinson. And I'm Vanity Fair chief critic Richard Lawson. If you are just joining us for this last episode of this uh, little mini-series we're doing, what Richard and I like to do on this podcast is every week we break down one episode of a show that we are currently sort of watching closely or obsessively. We are finishing up our run on the FX on Hulu series, Mrs. America. And then after this episode, we are taking a break for uh, a couple months and we'll be back in the fall. So, uh, you know, we are, we are end of a, end of an ERA era, end of our, um, recording this podcast for just a little while but we will be back um yeah i i got appointed to a cabinet position oh so oh i i was told i was too divisive to get a cabinet well no so i got i like all men are given a special phone and sometimes it rings and you just get jobs and stuff it's great cool not what happens for women as it turns out um all right so if you haven't been uh watching along with us uh, we've been really lucky to have a bunch of great interviews uh throughout this mini series um and this episode is no exception in that we have a threefer for you. We've got uh, Stacey Scher, who is one of the executive producers on the project and sort of had the idea for the show in the first place. She's got some great insights to share with us. We've got the return of showrunner Davi Waller and the return of series stars Kate Blanchett. So one, two, three. Um, great stuff for you to listen to. But first, you're going to have to listen to Richard and me talk about a few things uh, as well. Our thoughts and feelings in this finale. Um, I wanted to kick off by bringing up something that you wanted to mention last week, Richard. I know you really love the episode Houston and uh, you wanted to shout out the director of that episode. Yeah, Janixa Bravo, uh, who is really good. Um, she made a movie that was at Sundance a few years ago called, uh, Lemon. Um, and then this year at Sundance, she had, uh, a kind of a bigger, more, more buzzy film, 
uh, called Zola, which was buzzy partly because it was the first ever movie um, based on a Twitter thread. Um, but uh, what you, the style and the sort of tone you see in that movie, I think, is well mirrored by um, uh, the Houston episode of this show. Um, she's just got both a real visual style, but also a really keen touch with actors. Um, uh, as we saw with, you know, Sarah Paulson's great performance as well as everyone else in that episode. So, um, I didn't even realize that she had directed it because sometimes our screeners don't have full credits on them. Um, so I just wanted to retroactively, uh, compliment, uh, Bravo because, um, say Bravo to Bravo, um, because, uh, yeah, I mean, she just really kind of knocked it out of the park. Excellent. So um, check out uh, Lemon uh, if you haven't already, and then look forward to Zola whenever that might be released. Um, we also got a couple emails. Um, a couple of them are about this interview that Gloria Steinem gave to The Guardian about the show. And we are going to address that a little later on in the episode. You can always email us stillwatchingpod at gmail.com. You can email us over the summer if you miss us. If you want to tell us what you're watching. If you want to make suggestions for what we should pick up in the fall because we haven't decided yet, you know? So take a look at the release calendar. If you see anything in September that you think you would love to hear us talk about, let us know. Still watching pod at gmail.com. Um, I do want to read a little bit of this email from uh, a listener, Bill Cody. The title of the email is I knew Phyllis Lofley. Um, and uh, Bill talks about uh, being on the speakers board at Washington university in the seventies. And, um, and about how, um, you know, conservative students at the school really wanted conservative speakers, how a lot of the conservative speakers were both too expensive and like unlikely to fill the room uh, that they needed to fill for the speakers bureau. So uh, someone they uh, went to a couple times to sort of meet this demand was Phyllis Schlafly, who did not uh, require a speaker's fee she, because she went to law school there. So all she asked for was um, a lunch. Um, and Bill concludes this email. The problem with Schlafly from someone who actually met her a few times is that she was disarmingly nice in person. I think the show is doing a good job with that. And maybe people will learn something about why it is important, not just to shout at your opponent. Sometimes you catch more flies with honey. Not sure the new left has figured that out yet. Keep up the good work, Bill. So, um, that is actually a theme that will come into play directly, uh, in this episode, uh, the idea of, how abrasive is too abrasive sort of thing. Um, but I thought that was, uh, interesting from Bill. And, um, you know, like I said, we are going on hiatus for the summer. So if you have any other thoughts about the show, you can't necessarily, uh, get them on air, but I still love to hear them. Uh, I know people were waiting for the finale to sort of see how they felt about how everything wrapped up. So I guess I'll, I'll just, um, start there with you, Richard, and, you know, we're going to get into some specifics, but in sort of like a general way, how do you feel like this finale lands the plane of, of this series? I cried. I I like cried like kind of a lot at the end. Um, just because it is such a, I thought it's such a lovely, um, X amount of steps forward, X amount of steps back, kind of just weary acknowledgement of how these things work. And I think that, you know, the end with the Steinem speech about like, you know, that, we'll make more strides when we reveal, you know, when, when the full potential of ourselves is revealed, I'm not quoting it, but like, you know, something like that. Like, I just think that the sentiment um, was, was nice, uh, even though dark things for one side of the argument uh, happened in this episode. And 
indicated toward a lot of dark things to come in the, you know, 40 years since. Right. This is, um, I think I knew a lot of people who were like sort of dreading this episode because, um, the Houston episode is, is fairly uplifting, even though it does have a sort of ominous end to it. And I think people were worried that this finale titled, uh, Reagan would be just a real downer of an episode. And I think they modulated the tone of it really well. Um, and I don't feel dispirited watching it. I feel galvanized. So that's, you know, that's where I landed. We'll, we'll sort of get into the specifics of how they did that. I wanted to start though with the Alice character, because I know this is something you had a question about at the end of last week's episode. Like, will we see, uh, you know, a payoff for Alice's journey that she goes through in this episode? And we get sort of, uh, two stories here we get alice's story and pamela's story and both of these are are you know uh not not it's loosely based on real life women but not actual real life figures and and for pamela who sort of sticks to phyllis's advice we get um a sad ending i would say and and for alice we get something else richard how did how did all that play out for you well, yeah. I mean, what did Pamela say in the Houston episode? If I go home, I'm just going to get pregnant again. And where, what do we see? She's got, uh, she's got another baby. Yeah. Uh, which you know, what, what, you know, what a miracle. But also, she didn't want it. And um, you know, she's she's back working in the trenches for Phyllis, um, who seems to be punishing Pamela for her husband's outlook on things and her husband's behavior and saying, well. If, if you want to go to that, like you go to this event, like you need to treat your husband differently. You know, Pamela has really been uh, ground into the dirt by the machine that is both the ideology she's working in support of, but also particularly Phyllis, who, um, you know, I think her bigger ambitions are, are, are laid more bare in this episode than they have been in the past, um, thwarted as they may have been ultimately. Um, whereas Alice, you know, I think it was something crucial that Paulson pointed out, um, in our interview with her last week is that like, you know, the episode Houston doesn't end with Alice forsaking everything that she believes. She just has her thinking a bit more comprehensively about it maybe. And, and a little bit more fairly about the other side. Um, and so I, I, I believed that Alice would come back to the carriage house where the, you know, the stop ERA headquarters is set up and try to help more and just, I mean, try to kind of return to things as normal, even though her mind has been, um, cracked open a little bit more. Um, and then, you know, find her way toward, um, an assertion of independence at the end. And it's not, you know, I think that a, a lesser show might have had her do, you know, taken some, big job on the other side of the argument or, you know, just kind of transcend the station she'd been in, in kind of grand fashion. But instead, no, I mean, she's still, you know, picking up Phyllis's daughter and uh, just, the, you know, taking care of her grandkids, but also she got a job and just, you know, for 411, you know, nothing sexier than that. Um, <laughs> it's just, but, but it's something, you know? Yeah. And um, I think that that was a really, um, I think both of Pamela's and Alice's sort of outcomes were um, measured ways to imagine where some women who were caught up in Phyllis's momentum uh, might have landed after she kind of blew through. Right. And this idea that like, you know, uh, when they have their sort of, um, they have, I guess, kind of three confrontations in the episode, but the middle one uh, with some alcohol involved, um, Phyllis says something like, I did this for you. 
You know what I mean? And and Alice is like, uh, no. <laughs> I mean, no, you did not do this for me. Like, we know that this series uh, starts off with Alice being the one to bring the ERA to Phyllis's attention. But this idea that Phyllis did any of this for anyone other than herself is is patently untrue, at least in this depiction of it, I think. Uh, it's sort of like that moment at the end of Breaking Bad where Walter White, you know, at first is like, I did this all for my family. I did this all for my family. And then eventually he's like, no, I did this for me. Um, yeah. You know, that's that's what Alice is trying to get Phyllis to see. So, yeah. Uh, the yeah. Episode, and the yeah. important yeah. thing is that it's okay that she did it for herself. It's okay to do that. You know, it's okay to have these big ambitions. Um, the problem is the uh, apparatus she used to get there. Um, and the ideology she used to get there, um, as is pointed out briefly in the scene where she's confronted after taking the LSAT, uh, that it's a, it's hypocritical, you know? Um, so I think that the show was really smart and correct in um, letting Phyllis mourn a little bit for the thing she wanted and didn't get and not punishing her entirely for wanting that thing, um, but certainly still questioning uh, yeah. her means and motivations. Yeah, and I do want to say that um <laughs> that that moment of the LSAT, uh, which kicks off the episode, uh, there is a photo in the Chicago Tribune in nineteen seventy nine of Phyllis Schlafly in that wig. Uh you know, that is a, a, a as is many of the unbelievable things that happen in the show, that is something that actually happened. Uh you can go read about it in the Chicago Tribune that uh Phyllis wore a wig to um, you know to to school so there you go um and, and there's this also this um this tr- oh, no the, sorry those wouldn't have been the LSATs they would have been the bar exam right right, right? yeah exactly yeah sorry um uh, there's also this Trumpian lie this very Trumpian lie she tells about her crowd size in Houston right that sort of kicks off the episode it 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 along with like a zoom in on a Reagan button that uses the slogan "Make America Great Again" are like the two most overtly Trumpian. Along with like mentions of, uh, like Paul Manafort and Roger Stone or, or appearances by convicted felons, Paul Manafort and Roger Stone. But like, that's the most overtly Trump moment for, for Phyllis in the series. And I appreciate, and it, and it's also based in reality. And I appreciate that the show is, has kept its foot off the pedal a little bit when it comes to drawing those parallels, because I think a lighter touch makes them land that much better. Do you know what I mean? I do. I mean, it, it is funny. Like, I, I knew that Make America Great Again was not an original slogan to the Trump campaign. Um, but just seeing it on that button, I was like, oh, these motherfuckers don't do anything. They don't have any of their own ideas. You know, <laughs> like, it's kind of like when uh, Melania gave the speech and people were like, this is plagiarized wholesale from Michelle Obama. Like, for Christ's sake, you people. Um you know, I mean, I think the Reagan administration, the Reagan candidacy, uh, or the campaign was its own brand of stupid. Um, you know, uh, so I'm not saying that like they were there, it was some genius strategy that then Trump just stole. I mean, they're both idiots in different ways, but, um, yeah, it was jarring to, to remember, like a lot of great period shows do that, like past is prologue, um, so many, so much of the time. So the, um, the big set piece for the first half of the episode is this, uh, ERA Follies, um, thing that, um, actually did happen. This funeral that Phyllis Schlafly threw for, um, the ERA. 
and um, you know you can you can read all about it in the New York Times. Um, the <laughs> there were two women dressed up as Bella Abzug and Gloria Steinem. They did get up and sing a song, though they sang like a parody song from Auntie Mame. Um, and instead, uh, this version uh, came up with its own song. Two little feminists are we? Uh, a Gilbert and Sullivan parody. Um, let us listen to showrunner Davi Weller talk about her <laughs> the creation of that song and sort of uh her thoughts on the finale overall i'm claire fallon and i'm emma gray we're culture writers podcasters and hosts of the show love to see it every week we give an unapologetically feminist dissection of reality dating shows rom-coms and other romance narratives we unpack all the weird messages they send us about love sex and dating and we dive into all the details with special guests like actors authors and cultural critics you can find Love to See It wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes drop every Tuesday. It's titled Reagan, and I don't want to, like, read too much into it, but, are, you know, are we meant to take some sort of, like, the era of the women's movement is over and this this episode is not for <laughs> a man? <laughs> yes. That's exactly what you're supposed to take away. The party is over, guys. Ugh. Reagan is in. The backlash is firmly <laughs> taken hold. Mm. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> <laughs> the real crash after Houston. <laughs> yeah, I don't real... um, that being said, you know, I just thought it was, I think it's interesting, you know, obviously at this point, um, there have been plenty of discussions around this show and, and whether or not people feel like, the depiction of Phyllis is, is appropriately critical, et cetera. And I was just wondering if it felt important to show that even in her victory that she gets in the, in this episode, Reagan gets elected. Um, you know, the ERA is, she, she holds a wake for the ERA, but, but it's a big moment of defeat for Phyllis. Was that important for you uh, to end the series on that note for her? Yeah. Uh, I I thought that ironic twist, you know, the feminist fears lose and it's a tragedy. And normally in this kind of show, the Phyllis character would be victorious and reap the rewards. But because she's a woman, she also loses. And that's very much the point. Yep. Feels right. Um, all right. So, so, um, I feel that in my bones. Um, so, so based on your recommendation, I uh, signed up for uh, subscriptions to newspaper.com. Uh, yeah, I love it. Very enjoyable. And you know what's really funny um, is oh, that um, if you go into newspaper.com and you read an article that someone else has clipped, you can kind of see that they've clipped it. So occasionally I'll like stumble on an article that you clipped for the show. It'll be like, Dobby clipped this on like, this day. And I was like, oh, I'm on the right track. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm like, oh. That's hilarious. You have so many clippings. It just made me always feel like... a bunch about the pie. Yeah, exactly. It just made me feel like I was on the right track. Joanna Detective on the hunt. (laughs) Yes, you're on the right path. But, um, so I was like, I was reading, um, you know, the the various articles and reportings on this um, Follies that uh, was put together and depicted in this episode. Uh And, um, you know, I was like, surely they didn't. I was like, oh, they did. Um, But... (laughs) 
That is all true. You're like, surely they didn't have an impersonator for Bella and Gloria right. singing a song. Oh, I guess they did. They did. But um, so I was reading that and I was like, well, is it this song? But it was like a different song. They had two inter- people portraying Bella and Gloria, but they're singing a different song. So I want to know how Two Little Feminists came to be in, in your version. <laughs> so we forget why we didn't use the actual song, but I, I said to Joshua, who co-wrote this episode with me, I was like, I know you have an inner musical theater person in you. What can you do? We, we knew we wanted to do that song, that particular song. Um, and I was like, There's, we just love song. It's public domain and it worked and it was funny. Um, I was like, I know you can come up with good lyrics. And he's like, oh, I couldn't possibly. Oh, I couldn't. And then, like, the next day, he sends me this perfect song in my inbox with these lyrics. And I thought he did a beautiful job. And it was just uh, one of the highlights of the shoot was watching Melanie Linsky <laughs> sing this song. It was amazing. Because <laughs> you know Rosemary would have. Oh, oh yeah. that that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the other thing that I love that seems a slight, uh, ever so slight tweak on history that you give in this episode. So there's a lot of um, large scale carnage, of course, that Phyllis is responsible for. But the personal wounds that she inflicts, especially on Eleanor, really land hardest with me. These like personal um, I don't know, slight is too hard a word, just cruelties. And, um, and so you give Eleanor this little moment, um, where she meets, she meets a gentleman outside after the bomb scare. And so then I like went and looked it up and I was like, did Eleanor like fine. And then I couldn't find anything that, uh, any evidence that she might've had a gentleman friend. So can you talk about that, that choice for her? <laughs> um, we, we all really loved Eleanor. We did read that she had boyfriends, um, but okay. we thought, when did she possibly have the time? <laughs> She's always taking care of the children at her home and you know, helping out the Slashleys. But we felt, I guess, and maybe this is us being sentimental in the writer's room, but we really wanted to give her some hope and have a moment where she's like, you know, when Phyllis gives that speech about these are my six jewels and I've raised them, and Eleanor sitting there that we just thought, wouldn't it be wonderful when she's in DC if she, you know, like they're, they're Phyllis's jewels. They're not mine. And I, I deserve a life. And yeah. so we definitely fictionalized that encounter, but I really loved it. And Jean is so wonderfully heartbreaking. You just love her. And that smile she gives at him is just too much. Thank you for it. Yeah, yeah. Call us sentimental, but (laughs) someone needs to have a happy ending. And why not Eleanor? Eleanor and the other um, and the other one that we wanted that we wanted to highlight is Willie B. uh, Phyllis's cook. That um, you know, there's that scene in the finale where she talks about. I guess I could write a cookbook. I have so many recipes. She did self-publish a cookbook in 1984 called Blue Ribbon Recipes. And there was a chapter on bread, pies, and cakes. That's so cool. That's great. I love the detail. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I know that you you made a decision in advance of uh, filming the series not to be in contact with any of um, the folks, uh, real-life folks who were involved before you made the show. But what is, you know, I I actually kind of want to specifically ask about uh, 
Jill Ruckelshaus, the fact that she has said that she watched the show, she likes the show. What does that mean to you uh, as someone who put this together as sort of a a love letter to this this time in this era? It means everything to me. Um, I first of all, I actually came to came to love Jill Ruckelshaus in writing for her, and she is every bit as wonderful as she appeared to be in the seventies. I have to say. Um, it really is very validating, you know, when she said that she often made overtures to fellows and always felt rebuffed and she was trying to get at the, you know, there must be, does she really believe in what she says? It was really validating because we really did rely on primary sources and reading what these women said back then in the seventies and extrapolating these encounters that obviously have to be imagined because there's no record of, of them. Although they really were, I mean, Jill really did moderate that debate that Phyllis did at the National Press Club. They really did cross in that moment, but we imagined the conversation that they would have. So it was really great to hear that that felt real to her and that the dynamics of the feminist leaders was she wouldn't say, oh, Betty was trouble and very rude. <laughs> I just thought, yeah, that is pretty much what we what we read about. So I, that meant a lot to me. Um, it was really it was quite gratifying. I know you talked about how you wanted the show to be sort of the various moments that these women sort of touched each other, uh, you know, and, and crossed paths, and you didn't want to really invent any of it. But was it ever tempting to invent some sort of more meaningful interaction between Gloria and Phyllis? So many times. We're like, what if they just debate? <laughs> what if we just make up a debate? <laughs> I mean, that would make the storytelling much easier. And also, Kate and Rose, like, you'll want them to be in together to most brilliant actresses working today but it just didn't feel right and um we always thought we had to follow the true events and be even though we imagined you know conversations but be true to the emotional truth of what these characters and people went through and since gloria had said she would absolutely not debate Phyllis and didn't want to give her any airtime it felt untrue to put them in a room together when that was Gloria's entire philosophy about Phyllis. It felt like it was telling the wrong story. So it definitely was tempting and it would definitely make our lives easier. <laughs> but we had to really be creative about making the story the fact that Gloria never encountered Phyllis. And whether or not that was the right thing or not to do. You know, and Betty kind of calls her out on that, their final scene together in the finale. So we made that the story. Like, we made what, what was difficult storytelling into the story itself. Um, and we also made a part of the story that it would be frustrating for Phyllis that Gloria ignores her. Like, I think it must have gotten to Phyllis that Gloria just always ignored her and refused to ever appear with her when she sees herself as on par with Gloria. Right. And... You have to wonder if maybe Gloria was right because today very many people confuse Phyllis Schlafly with Anita Bryant and she's often a footnote in history whereas everyone knows who Gloria Steinem is. So maybe not wanting to share her spotlight was a smart move. And so we wanted to honor that. Exactly. I mean, I think uh, that's com- it's comforting. It's comforting the number of people actually who, <laughs> I, who I've talked to who hadn't heard of Phyllis Schlafly um, you know, and, um, but I also think that it's so valuable that the show, 
um, is saying, okay, but don't remember these, don't forget these sort of insidious forces that can come and shape an entire political landscape for generations to come. You know, it's, it's, uh, that's right. There's, they're going to be reactionary forces every generation and they're, they're going to look a little different than Phyllis, but they're going to have the same, uh, influence and we have to, we can't ignore the backlash leaders because they do, they have changed the course of where this country has gone, as we've seen. Something I remember you saying at um, at the Television Critics Association press tour was that, um, y- you know, and subsequently, that you really wanted, you didn't want to tell people what to make of the show, that you really wanted them to, you know, make their own uh, choices when it came to how to process the show. That being said, you know, is there... Like, that sounds like me. <laughs> I'm a consistent person. (laughs) Is there a reaction that you're, that you've been like, you know, other than, other than obviously Jill's great reaction, is there a reaction from, you know, the general audience that you've been particularly proud of or, or gratified by? Yes. I've had a number of people text me that they watch the show with their moms and it has led to deep, conversations with their moms about this time period and their mother's experiences during this time period and learning a different side about their mother. That has been incredibly gratifying, especially since all the writers and and myself have talked with our mothers in the course of making the show about their experiences and felt closer to them because of that. Um, I also really, it's really gratifying to hear the number of women, young women who feel galvanized to fight who um, who have discovered new role models and the women in the show, that has been really rewarding. Um, you know, I set out, I want to be a writer to make people feel and to provoke meaningful conversations. So the fact that those conversations are happening is really all I ever hoped for. We, we see in this episode this... Um you know, both via Phil Crane and then, you know, the folks working for Reagan, that this question of is Phyllis building this mailing list or is she capitalizing on the ERA movement just so she can build this mailing list, just so she can sell it to someone. Um, and we see that made even more explicit when it is treated as this extremely valuable commodity in this race. Do you think this was her long game the whole time? I do. I do because I think she was, was, she was a very brilliant grassroots organizer and she was a very strategic thinker and mailing lists are very valuable. They're still valuable. You know, Obama's network is very valuable to the next democratic nominee, right? Um, that's and his coalition building. So I, and she was so guarded with the list, you know, the fact that she wanted to have control over all her supporters and have everything be run through her. Uh, is someone who understands the value of their base. Uh, I don't know how you would build a coalition she built without an eye towards using that as leverage in some way. Um, so I do think she knew what she was doing. And I think the feminist leaders were right to call her out on it too. Yeah. They're smart of them. A couple people have mentioned, I th- and I think you've mentioned as well, that you know the original um, episode order size is smaller and that the story kind of kept expanding and expanding until you have nine episodes here. What was being added in that expansion? You know, once, as I, I think I mentioned this on our first interview, that I we sold the show to FX 
in late 2015. Right. Um, once the 2016 election happened and I pivoted to have the show be this broader um, story about the country's move to the right and the birth of sort of cultural wedge issues and origins of our cultural wars, it became clear that we would need more episodes to tell that story. So that was the point in which it started ballooning to nine episodes. That was when I was really became interested in spending more time with um, the women's convention and the state meetings leading up to it. Um, that's when I added the episode about Jill and wanting to tell the story of the 1976 convention, which is not, it, it's important to the battle of an equal rights amendment, but it's very important in telling stories of the shift of the country to the right and the takeover of the Republican Party by the far right. So that's when it started to get bigger because it, it, it was a broader story that I wanted to tell. So other than expanding Jill's character, you know, into her own episode, um, are there any other characters that you felt needed to be um, expanded in wanting to address um, sort of the Trump of it all? Um, definitely Lottie Beth Hobbs mm-hmm. became a bigger character representing the evangelicals and Rosemary Thompson as a, a you know, pretty far right uh, believer. Uh, those two roles were expanded quite a bit. We also found, you know, originally I thought episode two would go, would encompass all the way through the convention and not be split into what became Gloria and Shirley. And after I wrote a draft and it was just, there was too much story to fit into one episode. And that's when I split it up into focusing on Gloria and her fight for abortion rights and then picking up that story, but through Shirley's, uh, point of view in the third episode so that also added an episode. Um, I'm very happy we took our time with both of those. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I I can't imagine this season. I, I know. Yes. I don't know what I was thinking. <laughs> I can't imagine it less than nine and actually I want more than nine. So yeah. Um, um, I love that. One of, one of my favorite conversations that I've had with your talented cast uh, this season is with Margot Martindale, who got actually kind of emotional talking about how, Oh my God, I haven't listened to it yet. I'm so very excited to listen to it. But tell me. Well, she, she got, yeah, she got kind of emotional talking about how, you know, she wasn't a feminist, as you know, during this time, the time that this movement was happening. And I asked her sort of like, okay, well, when did you start to feel like one? And she said, making this show, and she kind of like broke down about it. And she was just like, it really changed me. And like, I, I feel, you know, and she's like, I'll be out there this time, I'll be fighting, like all this sort of stuff. Um, and so I, I, I was just curious, you know, how you feel like this show has changed you? Um, you don't have to get as emotional as Margaret Martindale did, but um, you can if you want to. Well, do I don't want to be a clip by Margaret Martindale. <laughs> I, you know, I, I can't cry as Margaret ever. Um, I think it, I think similarly, uh, it has galvanized me. I definitely was guilty of living in a bubble before 2016 and believing that we are in a post-feminist world and Things were relatively equal, even if not exactly. And I think I've definitely been awakened to the deep iniquities and the systemic sexism and misogyny that still plagues us and feel very galvanized having gone through this to fight for equality and that it, you know, no one wants to be fighting all the time. (laughs) Everyone just wants to relax, but 
I really came away feeling like it's so dangerous to be complacent. And the flip side is that I also came away from this experience feeling like we have to listen to people we don't agree with. You know, um, that living in an echo chamber doesn't really change anything. Tweeting to people, if your followers will all agree with you and heart what you're saying doesn't really make anything change or different. You really have to find some way to, we have to interact with people we don't agree with if we're going to get anything done. I mean, not, not that I personally can get anything done, but I think just being open to that conversation, uh, even when it's uncomfortable and hard, is probably important. Yeah. I also came away from this experience wanting to do many more shows with lots of amazing female characters. Yeah, like, I was... I'd worked on so many shows. <laughs> I mean, in my, in my, if you look at my CV, I've worked on so many shows that focused on men. And I, there's just such a joy in that bonding that Margo talked about with her. Like, as a task. I mean, I think they, when, it, you know, when do you get to be in a show with so many other powerful, amazing actresses playing also complicated roles and to be in scenes with them? So I, I'd love to be writing more of that. That was my other takeaway and what I got out of it. Have you had any, any ideas about another very uh, female country? <laughs> oh, my gosh. I, so many, but none I can really speak to that's set up anywhere. But they're, they're, in doing this show and looking around and being suddenly aware of, like, how many shows I watch that are centered on men, there is still a scarcity of great uh programs and roles for women in it. and I, I hope we see more. There's so many untold stories from history even from this time period that I didn't even get to fit into this show that could be told. So I think it's exciting and I I, I hope that we just start seeing more of these stories told. I want the like <clears throat> Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead version of Mrs. America season one. Season two is just like all the other women who are involved. Uh, oh my god! <laughs> I Tom Stafford is my idol, so I love that you mentioned that. Well, one of my editors, Todd, who edited um, the Houston episode, <laughs> he used to joke, he's like, if you do a spinoff, it's got to be Rosemary Thompson and Betty Friedan, the odd couple, get an apartment in the city together. <laughs> I was like, sold. Done. Melanie oh and Tracy, God. I'm there. I'm here for it. <laughs> I love that. So that's one idea on the table. I, I'm for it. I'm, I'm for We're it. open to others. Carly. Just call it like Betty and Rosemary. Oh my god, I would I would watch it in heart. Right. Or like or like maybe even like a I mean we could get a foursome going, right? We could do like a Golden Girls style foursome. Oh my god, Golden Girls. (laughs) I mean I could also watch it. I could also do Bella and Betty any day of the week. I mean we had one scene of the two of them together and in the Bella episode and it was such a blast. Those two together. They were so great. Um, oh, great. All right. Well, thank you so much for the show, for talking. Oh, me. thanks, Joanna. I appreciate it. So, uh, Richard, is, is Two Little Feminists, are we, uh, is, is that uh, stuck in your head at all <laughs> right now? Fresh off the I finale? mean, stuck in my head, sure. But also, it made me think about, um, the. I think it's the pilot episode of Studio 60 and the Sunset Strip, the doomed Aaron Sorkin show uh-huh. about a late night comedy show where the big, like they have a, a final sketch problem or, op- or no, it's an opening number problem or something, opening sketch problem. And then the genius writer decides, actually, and Sarah Paulson's in that show, um, she is. decides to, it says, oh, I got it. 
you know, this is like 2006 or something, a Gilbert and Sullivan parody. And it's like, <laughs> that wouldn't have saved anything <laughs> um, in 2006. Um, but, you know, uh, so here we have other worse dorks uh, using the same source material. Oh, uh, yeah. I have to say the dorkiness of like uh, Phyllis backstage, like singing along to the words that she probably helped write and like so self-satisfied um, with it. Uh, and it is so corny and hokey, uh, and everyone's laughing so hard. I mean, it's, it's, it's fantastic. There was also. Well, conservatives not- can't do comedy. They're not, <laughs> they're not funny. There's also a cutaway to, uh, John playing the piano for them during the lyric when they're talking about, um, like the, the gay exclusion from the area movement and stuff like that, which is like our last kind of check in with John, um, there. And they even do the limp wrist when they say right. gay. Yep, they sure do. Um, I, I want, I want to, so it's like Phyllis then gives a speech and, and this directly addresses, um, I don't know if you saw any of uh, the interviews that, um, Anne Schlafly, Corey, uh, Phyllis's daughter gave. She gave a lot of interviews before the show came out about how, um, how much it maligned her mother. And, um, you can take those all, including one to, uh, Vanity Fair. And you can take all of those with a, you know, a mountain of salt if you want to. And one of her main critiques was that the show, um, you know, really got wrong about Phyllis was that, you know, her, her children were her focus. And here's, here's a quote from the interview she gave our colleague, Julie Miller. Uh, I know what really motivated Phyllis Schlafly, her family. Why did she say, what did she say was her greatest achievement? Her six children. Here in this episode, we have like, this episode was written before and gave those interviews, uh, written and filmed and printed. And, uh, they have Phyllis saying exactly that. And just because you say that doesn't mean, you know, that that's true. It rings so false, uh, when she says it. What did you think of that speech and that, and that moment where she's uh, directly addressing her family? Well, yeah. I mean, it's true to some extent, but, uh, in practice, it's, I mean, I think, I think that that, that part of things gets at a really interesting, um, kind of vexing issue uh, when it comes to issues of motherhood and working women and all these things where, where the question of like where in the kind of priority schema should children, if they factor in at all factor in. Right. Um, And should we celebrate a certain brand of, you know, let alone the men who don't really, you know, (laughs) Everyone just says, oh, he held a baby once. Congratulations. He's the best father. <laughs> Whereas with women, it's like right. there's oftentimes with wealthy, powerful women, not an acknowledgement of nannies and other domestic help, you know, um, things like that. And I think in the, in this moment at the, at the banquet, like you see her completely pretend or gloss over the fact that her sister in law has helped her through this whole thing, um, in terms of raising children. Um, and, and, and it's not acknowledged for that. Um, at the same time, should we say that like, she should have put children, you know, motherhood first above all else. And, you know, that should have been the, the sort of, you know, her greatest, you know, mission and sacrifice in life. No, not that either. Um, the problem is from the Phyllis side of things, uh, compared to the, uh, to the, to the, to the left, the progressive view on these things is the progressive side is willing to talk about the complications of that, 
you know, and to acknowledge that not one one situation does not apply to all, that everyone's home life is different, everyone's priorities are different, um, and to try to make the best policy that can help everyone, as many people as possible, at least. Um, whereas Phyllis kind of wants to prescribe one way of doing things and then live a different reality for herself, um, which is where you start to see the cliche, uh, the, the hip, the hypocrisy really kind of come out of, of her argument in this episode and then see a little bit of the collapse of it in, in some senses. Yeah. The, you know, do we expect her to acknowledge her, the family cook, uh, Willie, Willie, uh, read in this, uh, speech? No, though she should. Um, but the, the face to face slighting of Eleanor is just like, especially Jean Triplehorn's little face, um, as it's happening. Once again, it goes back to these like very personal, um, attacks that Phyllis makes, uh, throughout this series that, that hit even harder for me than, than some of her wide scale damage that she does. And I, you know, maybe that's uh, reverse priorities, but I do like, you know, Davi talked about in the interview you guys just heard. Um, I do like the little like invented moment they have for Eleanor here where she gets to meet a man. Um, not that, you know, that's the end all be all of everything, but like gets to embark on uh, an adventure of her own. It seems uh, outside uh, this event and is absent from the question later in the episode when like they, you know, they can't, they, Anne is missing. She didn't get a ride back from school. Who's going to pick her up? Like Eleanor isn't in, in that conversation. Cause she's off having her own adventure, which you would wish for her. So I like, that. yeah. And, and in that, in that scene, you start to see the tenuous arrangement of Phyllis's life start to crumble where her husband is like you can tell kind of like well all right this has gone as far as it needs to it can go you need to pick you need to like snap back and return to your duties you know um you know and and when there is such an unyielding idea of parental responsibility household responsibility um it it's gonna swing back and hit her in the Phyllis in the face, which, you know, it doesn't exactly in this episode. Um, but you get the sense of how in a broader sense for more people who kind of espouse this thing, it, it, it can and, and probably does, you know, um, when push comes to shove, uh, you have to kind of practice what you preach. And in her case, it's, you know, duty to home first. Yeah. I mean, we, we will get to the ending and I, I have a lot of thoughts on, on that final image, but, um, yeah, I, I think I think that's a really interesting point. And like the, the um the image the the image from this event uh with Phyllis in that designer gown, which is a a real gown that Phyllis wore at a later event, but they like found it online and it's this like really striking thing that is of course on all the promotional material for Mrs. America with like the winged uh sleeves and stuff like that. This just like this it's a beautiful dress and it's also a preposterous dress. And it's just all part of like this whole theater of Phyllis Schlafly. You know what I mean? This whole, like her whole speech is just sort of like, I say these things cause I know it makes the libbers angry and like all this sort of stuff like that, which is something she actually said, you know, it's just like, she's such a ridiculous woman. Um, and maddening and maddening, enraging to watch, which is why Alice, Alice sort of, losing drunkenly losing her shit on her is is really cathartic for us to to watch in this episode you know 
Yeah, and I think what it also shows, I mean, you know, one one of the empathetic things about this show is that it shows that Phyllis and 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 her her compatriots or whatever are are caught in the same trap, you know, right. in the same like dress up and look pretty, but also then maybe they'll just think of you as kind of a Barbie doll. But then if you don't, then they'll dismiss you. And so they are trying to play by the same, um, by, by the rules imposed on all women. Um, they, they see a different course through that. And I, and, and it's one that I think you and I both disagree with. And I think the show ultimately does as well, obviously. Um, but, but you can't not see the binding they're placed in, you know, and, and not feel some, um, you know, sympathy and I guess pity in a sense. I mean, pity sounds like a condescending word, but like, um, you know, they, they, they're not in a good situation either. Um, and, and, and that's not really of their own doing, even if they are in some senses fighting to uphold that system. Yeah. So that's, I mean, that's a great, that's a perfect segue into, um, this Gloria Steinem interview. So Gloria Steinem gave this interview, uh, to The Guardian on May 22nd, or at least it was published on May 22nd, which was unfortunately after I spoke to all of our guests, uh, for this podcast. So I could not ask them directly about that. Though, um, st- you'll hear from Stacey Schur sort of addressing some of the stuff that Gloria talked about, even unprompted. Uh, so we'll get to that in a second. But I, you know, ra- rather than read from the emails we got from folks, asking us to talk about this interview, I thought I would read a bit from the interview itself. Uh, Gloria, not a, a fan of the show, but also not convinced she's watched the show. So here's what Gloria said. What is important to remember, though, women may be a problem for other women. They don't have the power to be the big problem. Women may be adversaries. We don't have the power to be our own worst adversaries. For instance, there's now a not very good series here called Mrs. American. It gives you the impression that Schlafly, who was a very religious and right-wing woman who opposed the Equal Rights Amendment, it gives you the impression that she was the reason it was defeated. In actuality, I don't believe she changed one vote. Nobody could ever discover that she changed even one vote. The insurance industry here opposed the Equal Rights Amendment because if they stopped segregating their actuarial tables, it would cost them millions upon millions of dollars. Shoffley was someone brought in at the last minute to make it seem that women opposed equal rights when the truth was the vast majority already supported it, Steinem said. And this is the last quote from Steinem. The series makes it seem as if women are our own worst enemies, which keeps us from recognizing who our worst enemies are. Not that we aren't in conflict. Yes, we are in conflict. But by and large, we don't have the power to be our own worst enemies. Uh, and before... Richard, I get your reaction to that. I do want to throw, uh, to our interview with Stacey Sher where she, she brought up, uh, the insurance, uh, issue herself. So here we go. Here's, uh, Stacey Sher. How did this idea come to you in, in the first place? I had watched a documentary that was on PBS, um, that was made by makers and it was about second wave feminism and there were all different pieces to it. And one segment of it was about Phyllis Schlafly and that this idea, I kind of remembered her, but quite honestly, couldn't really tell the difference between her as a cultural fixture, you know, between her and Anita Bryant. Right. And one of the things that people said when they were talking about her, aside from also talking about the fact that she was definitely working with the insurance lobbies because her main interest was, um, was defense, but um, one of, and, and she didn't really care about the ERA when she first started out, um, but they talked about the hypocritical nature of her making a name for herself as a woman who essentially lived her life as a liberated woman, um, preaching the um, 
preaching the joy of staying at home when she really wasn't. Can you talk a little bit about um, the insurance lobby angle? Well, um, you know, the insurance lobbies, um, actually up until the Affordable Care Act, were able to essentially treat being a woman as a pre-existing condition so that you can charge women more. And there have been a lot of things that are, um, so life insurance, health insurance, you know, many things, um, you were allowed to discriminate what you charged men and women for their premiums um, and auto insurance. And so, and, and essentially that was the rule in the same way that people talked extensively about the pink tax where there's, um, you know, let's talk about like razors for men versus razors for women. Right. And, um, and women's razors cost more than men's razors. They're pink. Mm-hmm. So that was start that, you know, that was referred to as the pink tax. And then of course, um, uh, there are laws still in many places where, um, necessities like sanitary goods are still taxed in, in ways that condoms are not. Right. So, um, the insurance lobby stood to lose a tremendous amount of money by changing these rules. And, and that's frankly, you know, other ways in which they've worked against the Affordable Care Act. I kind of intuitively felt that if we told the story of second wave feminism from the point of view of the feminist, we'd be backing ourselves into a hagiography. Mm-hmm. And I thought if you inverted the storytelling and started with the point of view of the, of the spoiler, um, that it gave you the opportunity to humanize these figures um, who I hugely admire and whose shoulders we all stand on. Why, in your view, was Davi the, the person to, tell, to help tell that story? Davi and I had um, worked on two projects before um, we began working on this together. I, I loved working with her. She's one of the smartest. Um, she's just this kind of extraordinary combination of, of really gifted and um, entertaining and deep, you know, and that's, and, and I knew that both of those things were um, going to be required to make people want to stay with these characters week after week and learn something that could be viewed by some people as wonky. You have a long history in Hollywood. You've worked on some of my very favorite projects, such as the TV show Sweet Vicious, one of my favorite things that has ever existed. Um, you know, was the road to getting this project made any easier or more difficult than getting your other's projects made? And if so, you know, sort of what, what helped you, what hindered you? I think my, either my blessing or curse is, you know, that I'm relentless, you know, and sometimes I can look down the resume and go, Hey, maybe I should have let that go. But, um, I look, we had great partners in John Landgraf and FX and, you know, who, who would buy this idea anyway? And who, when Hillary Clinton didn't get elected, right. stuck with us when we had to really reconceive the show. And it went from being something that was going to be a bit shorter, like six episodes, um, and really became an origin story for the culture wars that we're in now to explain how we got here from there, you know, when Trump was elected. Um, you know, that in itself was, was a feat. I'm wondering, you know, if you had any concerns going into the project uh, or, or in, in launching the project, if you had any concerns about what the reaction would be like, and if you had any concerns, how has the reaction either surprised you or, or confirmed uh, anything you were worried about? I think that what 
surprised me is that sometimes people are looking for in episode one for somebody to lay all their cards on the table. And again, we knew that we were playing a long game of getting to where we end up here, you know, in episode nine, which everyone will see, um, that you couldn't start out depending on which side of the spectrum you, you fall on, whether, you know, whether you're, um, uh, a staunch conservative or extremely liberal, um, you can't start out demonizing or canonizing. You have to, you have to start out kind of neutral so that you have somewhere to go dramatically. So I, I think that surprised me that people didn't understand that we were telling a story. Um, I think right. that people are far, far, I, I don't know about you. I, I don't know what you think about this, but I think that people are far more and, and Davi and I talked about it in the development process. Um, far more accepting of male antiheroes or male, you know, birth of an antagonist kind of origin stories than um, they, they are with women. Oh, absolutely. Of course. Um, you know, I think, I think some of a lot of the um, concern around this idea of are, are we treating Phyllis Schlafly as the monster, you know, that so many people view her as, you know, or, or are we treating her with two uh, soft kid gloves? Um, you know, some of that is based on that thinking, but I think plenty of it is that discomfort in watching a woman in, in this role, this role that is practically worn out for men at this point with the amount of TV antiheroes that we've seen. I think that who does history remember? Yes, we're telling the story and people are now going to know who Phyllis Schlafly um, was that were outside of, you know, a, a niche of, of politics and really not such a niche uh, and um, a large part of where we live in our political spectrum right now. However, you can't hold progress back. You can hold it back for a while, but all the things that she used as incendiary items to terrify people, gay marriage, same-sex bathrooms, if you take the natural extension of this um, small national government, you know, we're living in Phyllis Schlafly's America now. So, um, and you see the, the botched response to the pandemic, we're living with. Um, their idea of, you know, taking away the size of the federal government and how it protects us. Started out, we, we were on the precipice of something historic and thinking that we were going to rise above our internalized patriarchal biases in this country. Yeah. And it turned out that we really weren't. And, um, you know, off the record... Um, just for the conversation, uh -huh. but I, I think, I think the thing that happened all on its own was that the parallels were catching up with the show. Like a woman's right to choose became a really significant issue. Again, redistricting, you could turn on, you know, a daily, the, da the New York Times daily podcast and hear an entire episode on redistricting. You, every single issue that was going on in the culture wars and raging in 1972, probably in reaction to um, the forward momentum of the civil rights movement. Um, you know, they pushed back against, uh, against the women's movement. 
So I think that, you know, certainly maybe that was also the case with suffrage after, um, after the abolition of slavery. But we definitely were hoping that while Phyllis was hoist on her own petard, certainly, and, and um, never got what she wanted because she was too polarizing. So we also look at the fact that what happens to women when they try to achieve power in, in a way that's um, viewed as unacceptable that it, we also hope that it reminds people that, you know, what the power of activism is um, and, and you got to get out there and that, that ultimately if you keep pushing forward and you don't go to sleep, you can affect change. On that note, um, I, I was at the, um, Television Critics Association um, press tour when, you know, one of my colleagues asked you all about, you know, your daughters and watching the show and, and uh, you and Elizabeth Banks made a really good point about like, okay, but ask us about our sons and watching the show. So um, I was wondering if you talk about, you know, uh, you know, either both your kids, uh, if you if you care to and, you know, maybe specifically your son and his experience being on set or watching the show and, and what questions he has and how this might help shape a future generation of young men uh, and their view of, of women. Well, I will say that my 18 year old son loves the show <laughs> and, um, and, you know, and, and my kids are brutally honest with me about anything I do. You know, he's, um, he cares a lot about um, social justice issues. And so I think what, what the show really does is, look at feminism in the context of social justice issues. And I think that it really looks at the origin story of how feminism became the F, the other F word. Right. Um, and, and I think showing these women as not um, the strident and shrews that the media has, you know, portrayed them as, um, you know, liberal and right wing alike, you know, I mean, it, has been really enlightening for my son, you know, to look at what a simple concept feminism is and what a simple concept the equal rights. I, first of all, as with regards to the equal rights amendment, I think both my kids thought that it was something that was already in the constitution before I started working on the show. Right. I, you know, it seems, it seems weird to hope because it's been sort of so many years of, what feels like hopelessness, but, um, honestly, you know, this show, um, the moments of, of beautiful hope that are captured in this show, you know, that, that a number of the women who worked on it have talked about and including those convention scenes, you know, it's, it, this is a good time for this show. It makes me want to fight really hard this year, this election year. So, um, thank you. For well, it. I, I'm glad that, I'm glad that you felt that way at the end of episode nine, because that's really what my hope was that, that people walked away saying that democracy and justice are worth fighting for. Uh, look, I, I will say that the thing that was surprising is everybody wants to give Phyllis short shrift for her organizing skills, you know, and my daughter and I were talking to my mom during mother's day and my mom briefly was a teacher and she was talking about how that yeah, was one of the few careers that women were encouraged to pursue because they got the summer off to be with their kids and they could be home after school with their kids. Mm. 
And she said, and that's why historically teachers are paid so little money because it was a woman's job. God. I mean, so when we think about why do we pay teachers so little money? Because it was married women who were viewed as it being supplemental income who chose to work. Wow. That's crazy when you start to unpack the layers of the kind of internalized patriarchal bias. Yeah. I mean, I imagine, I imagine that's also true. The nursing profession, um, the like stereotypical female professions, you know, what is that expression? Every generation has to earn back their, their, um, you know, relitigate their, um, their rights again. And I think that we're really seeing it now. You know, I think we weren't, I, I think we thought the backlash was over. Oh, yes, there was a backlash yeah. to the women's movement, but there was so much other progress. Nobody really was looking at the way that those guys were putting together their team and starting to stack judges and starting all of that, you know. All right, so Richard, do you have any thoughts on sort of what Gloria Steinem has to say here and and how this episode may or may not um, directly address that? I mean, I think she makes a 100% valid point, both about the show and about the larger, larger argument about someone like Schlafly, um, which is, and, and look, we see it now where the powers that be benefit from infighting, you know, right. um, they, they benefit from the left going after the left. I'm not saying that that doesn't mean there shouldn't be conflict as, you know, Steinem doesn't say that either um, within, you know, within the ranks. Um, but I think that, you know, I don't know how much of the show she's watched, um, maybe the whole thing, maybe none of it, maybe some of it, I don't know. But like, for me, from my personal perspective on the show, um, which isn't really in disagreement with, with what Steinem said, but, um, is that I, for me, and maybe it's a failing of the series this kind of construction, maybe not. I don't really think this show's about the ERA. You know, I, I think it's, I think it's about, um, a fault line on ideological grounds that really started to widen in the seventies. And, and right. that's why the episode, the series ends where it does. And yes, the ERA is the kind of through line that takes us through the series. And, 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 and maybe there were, um, you know, you know, demagoguery for people like Schlafly that was, it was changing minds on the vote. Maybe it was just insurance agencies. Maybe it was some kind of combination of the two things. I certainly wouldn't doubt if behind closed doors, the, the big, the men of big business were just, you know, never going to see this thing through to begin with, you know? Um, but I think that what I found so enriching about the show was not necessarily the granular history about the ERA itself, but more a snapshot and a pretty, I mean, snapshot sounds small, but a, pr- a pretty, pretty wide reaching survey, let's say of, uh, of a moment in time and, um, and, a, and a kind of shifting political understanding of this country. Um, I think that the show succeeds on that merits really well. Um, whether or not it gets at the root of the specific mechanics of the RA's passage or not, not passage. And, and, um, I, I, I don't know, but, um, I feel like, um, you know, Steinem is, uh, well within her rights and then some to, uh, weigh in on the show. Uh, and I, you know, I, it's a really interesting interview people should read. Yeah. It's, it's interesting though, because I think especially this episode and not that I would tell Gloria Steinem and oh, just wait till you see the finale, but like, I really feel like the finale drives home this whole, we have the same enemy, which is something that I think the, um, the show is, has danced around here and there. You know what I mean? Like, uh, Jill, 
the Jill episode where Jill talks to Phyllis and she's like, you know, they're looking up your skirt, Phyllis, like all this sort of stuff like that. Like we are on the same team and the team we're on is to try to break through the ways in which the patriarchy has put a cap on our potential. And the way in which the men in this episode, and we'll get to Carter and Reagan, um, push down uh, women on both sides of the aisle. I think, you know, in calling this episode Reagan, like Davi was sort of joking about it, but like uh, in our interview, but like, you know, this is the first episode named for a man. And I think the idea that here in the finale, we are seeing the ways in which the men are really the ones wielding the hammer um, really, really shines through, I think. And, and have been presiding over it the whole time. Right. allowing women this this thing and that thing sort of thing and then and then not you know and i I think that you know something this makes me think about from my own little side of things is um within like the gay rights movement i think we mentioned a few weeks ago that like you know when you learn gay history you learn about the men of stonewall some trans women but like that's kind of only recently been included in the historical record about the you know that um you know incident um you don't really, at least institutionally, read a lot about women, who, uh, queer women who were involved in, in all of this stuff from the 60s on. Um, and, and you look at what happened with gay marriage, where a, a lot of wealthy white gay men, um, you know, worked very hard, um, seemingly in, in league with, um, other progressive causes, uh, to get that, um, be- to become, you know, nationwide law that, you know, that gay marriage was legal. And then, I don't know, just anecdotally, I've seen a lot of those rich white gay men or not so rich white gay men, uh, turn pretty fucking conservative all of a sudden, you know, and because they got what they wanted and they're still men at the end of the day. Um, and, uh, and, you know, then women and, you know, non-binary people and whoever else gets shut out of the conversation because this is still a world ordered by men. Um, and I think you're right that the show, this episode, um, I don't, not in any sort of like overbearing bonky on the headway, um, you know, reminds you, especially in the stuff with Bella and the Carter administration that like, this was still, uh, you know, for all of the kind of intro woman stuff happening throughout the series, like there was a, a bigger, a bigger Leviathan, um, that they, and we all have to contend with. Yeah, so I, I agree with you. And I think uh, Stacy did a better job than I could of explaining sort of the connection, why the insurance agencies would be um, invested, literally, in uh, stopping the ERA. But, um, I, I, you know, I will say I, I, it's my belief uh, that Davi Waller and Stacey Scher and, and a lot of other people who made, who made the show did believe that there was, uh, you know, powerful men backing Phyllis Schlafly. But I think something that Davi was very, 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 very careful to do, and and this comes through in all the times that I've been like, well, this actually happened, is not show us anything that she couldn't, like, prove in a newspaper clipping or something like that. And if there is no smoking gun paper trail connecting Phyllis Schlafly to uh, investors from the insurance industry, men working behind her, then I think this show is not the show that wanted to say, well, probably X and make it seem like it's fact, you know? Not the least of which because the Eagle Forum seems like a really litigious organization. But also, I just think that, you know, that was the commitment that the show made. And so, um, 
you know, Stacy sure wrote a wrote an op ed for Variety that you can read about the series and some of some of the things that they thought about. But I think that they did not want to. I think the closest that they got is in the first episode. Um, Clem Stone, who was an insurance billionaire, was one of Schlafly's political backers, and and that is raised in the first episode. But unless you know who that is, you it, you you're not really going to make that connection for yourself. So I understand sort of Steiner's perspective on that. But I think, you know, if they had their druthers, that connection is something that they would have underlined more, um, you know, if this were a different kind of show. Does that make sense? Um, mm-hmm. So uh, for better or for worse, that's the show that we have here. And so that brings us to one of the uh, a big male antagonists of this episode, who's Hamilton Jordan, uh, who's, a, who's a figure I knew nothing about. But this is... Um, one of Carter's guys, right? And, uh, chief aide to Carter. And basically when, when, when Jimmy Carter was elected, uh, he brought a bunch of, uh, guys from Georgia with him, uh, including this guy, Hamilton Jordan. They were called, uh, the Georgia mafia by some members of the Washington media. Cause basically like, I think I, I don't want to, I didn't fact check this, but I think think Clinton did something similar with some of his Arkansas guys. And, uh, this idea of, um, you know, regional political people who don't have experience in Washington, not blending in well, uh, with the Washington political machine. That was sort of this idea with the Georgia mafia that came with Jimmy Carter. Uh, they were described as cocky guys by, uh, some of the reporters at the time. And apparently there's this anecdote that Hamilton Jordan has denied his own autobiography, but there is a, a an anecdote where um, like he was caught with cocaine. I think he was caught uh, allegedly caught with cocaine at studio 54. I don't care if you do cocaine at studio 54, everyone was doing cocaine at studio 54. Who cares? But another sort of uh, story about him was that um, he, he stared at the breasts of the Egyptian ambassador's wife at a Washington reception and remarked, I've always wanted to see the pyramids. So uh, this is the kind of uh, guy we are allegedly dealing with. He also wrote a memo to Carter in 79 uh, telling him to uh, fire his entire cabinet. Uh, and, uh, the memo, you can, you can find the memo online. Uh, the bullet point number four is you'll feel good after you do it. Uh, and Carter went ahead and did it. So like, the, you know, they're not overblowing this guy's, uh, scumminess or his influence, um, on Carter. And I think as portrayed by, uh, Canadian actor Dan Bierne doing a really nice, uh, uh, Georgia drawl to my ears, um, I think this, this slimy dude uh, is a really, really good uh, representative of, uh, you know, some of the guys that stand in our way in life. Uh, Richard, did, did this uh, did this land at all for you? I mean, I I had traumatic flashbacks to a freshman year roommate in college <laughs> who like yeah. was this guy. Yeah, <laughs> um, this guy is know, so like, familiar. <laughs> Just kind of weaselly and like nominally on your side, quote unquote, but like not really and, and more sort of concerned with the, um, exercising of might and power and access and, you know, than anything else. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's, it's never more evident than it is right now that people, quote unquote, on the right side of things, on the good side of things, um, our men in particular are 
uh, you know, just as bigoted as everything the, they accuse the other side of being, you know, um, just in, in, in different ways and sometimes more insidious ways because to say everything bad that you can about the other side, at least they're more honest about it, at least they're more direct about it. Um, you know, I don't know, it's not really a credit to them, but it makes them a little bit easier to fight um, in some ways. But um, yeah, I just think that like, yeah, it's a skin crawly couple scenes with that guy because he is so uh, recognizable. The um, and and that's the thing is he's not. I mean, honestly, it, to have a scene where he made that awful pyramid joke, uh, almost would have I think undermined the like more subtle villainy of this character um who's just like smiling and while being just the complete worst um all this stuff happened 22 members of the uh, national advisory committee uh on women resigned in protest uh this did happen like the whole meeting in the morning and then them already deciding to fire her all of that happened um exactly sort of as the show lays it out um, this, this sort of goes, this is why I brought up last week that the character of Carmen Delgado Vota should have been probably seated a little earlier in the series because she seems like so important in this moment of resignation, which is so cool. But yeah, they like tried to give the job to her and she said no and all these other women resigned. Um, it's a really cool moment. Once again, it's just a character that I wish we had seen earlier. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I also think that with like the, um, the whole Bella storyline in this episode, um, I mean, separate of the machinations of the Carter administration, um, is I like that scene at the end when she's with her husband and, you know, he's like, well, what, what do we do now? What's the next step? And she's like, well, we could, you know, encourage our kids to have children so we could have grandkids or we could go to the Amalfi Coast or whatever. Um, and you, you later, you or earlier, I forget what the order is, but you see Betty Friedan, who is, you know, doing some kind of bogus charity women's you know era run in the hamptons with paul newman and carl reiner and um (laughs) and uh, lucy arnez as she uh, calls her um and i like that the show which with those characters in particular um has we've seen them grapple with the fading of their own legacy as they see it or um a kind of creeping obsolescence you know like that a younger generation is moving right. past them and, and stopping listening to them I, I like that the show has both grappled with those concerns um and also in a way not putting them at the pasture at all but giving anyone who is that tireless an advocate um for a righteous political cause um the sort of permission the allowance to just like take a breather and to maybe like not retire a hundred exactly but like just it's okay to sit a little bit in your own life um, after all that work you've done. Like, I think, I think it's nice that they, it wasn't kind of forcing anyone into on and on and on into a tireless campaign. Like it, I like that they let Bella in particular, um, I don't know, breathe a little bit. I thought that was really sweet. Yeah. And there's a similar moment. Um, you know, she has that phone call with Shirley and there's a similar moment for Shirley Chisholm where she's, you know, she gets re- reelected, but she's like, I'm, I don't think I'm going to run again. And just sort of like, there's no real space for us here. And just, but that doesn't negate that the work they've done leading up to that, you know what I mean? So um, the one thing I did want to mention be- about 
the advisory panel on women before we roll on is I was curious that the show doesn't address this, but I was curious sort of like, okay, was that it? Like when those 22 women resigned, did the the panel go away? Like what, what happened here? Um, and I found out that they gave the appointment uh, to Linda Bird Johnson Robb, who's um, LBJ's one of LBJ's daughters. Right. And, um, she seems, you know, she's, she, she's a Democrat. She seems like a very nice woman. She like has done a lot of great work around literacy and stuff like that. But here is how the profile, um, on her, the, 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 you know, the news that she was taking over the panel, um, opens with this sentence. She has been the perfect political daughter, the perfect political wife, raising neither conflicts nor controversy. That's the first sentence of the New York Times article on, uh, Linda Bird Johnson Robb taking over Bell Abzug's position. And you're just sort of like, right. <laughs> they found someone who would be quiet and nice. And not that it much mattered because Carter would be out of the White House imminently anyway. But, um, that, you know, to, to, like, I was thinking about, it, I was like, that's like replacing like Alexandria Ocasio Cortez with like Jenna Bush or something like, you know what I mean? It's just like, it's a real slap in the face for the work of, of these women. Um, which is not, you know, it's not really a knock on, on, um, Johnson Rob because she seems, you know, like a nice person. It's just a quiet person. And, and that was the whole thing is that these women were too loud and too demanding. The New York Times, um, article about, um, Bella's firing, uh, ha- says, uh, someone from the White House said, uh, there should be no need for the White House to cringe in advance of a meeting with a committee set up to provide advice and assistance. So basically they were too loud, uh, too pushy for this position and were replaced. So there you go. Um, so that brings us to the end, which I want to focus on, uh, what happens to Phyllis here. Um, you know, you, you will have heard Davi Waller earlier in the episode talk about this ending for Phyllis and why it was important. I think Davi and Stacy both talked about this, why it was important to show Phyllis in a place of defeat, even in victory for sort of the tone that they want to set for the show. And Davi's point was, um, it, it seemed right to her that even, <laughs> That men would find a way to push Phyllis down, even uh, if she got them the White House. Um, if if we want to say that that's uh, you know that's something that Phyllis actually did uh, accomplish, she's also shut out. She's erased from the Goldwater memoir. Um, so so, what do you think, Richard? Does this feel like a suitably um, bitter? Not, I'm not even going to call it bittersweet. Just bitter ending for Phyllis Schlafly in this in this series. I think it's suitably complicated. Um, and I mean complicated in terms of how we in the audience are um, prone to react to it, you know, because on the one hand, in just the immediate interiority of the dramatic plot, it's sad that the person we're watching doesn't get the thing that they want, you know. Um, and it's more frustrating with a little more context that add, added onto it that she doesn't get it because. Um, of backroom conversations between men about the best way to, uh, you know, get the lady vote, I guess. Um, and so, yeah, like through just in just that little kind of contained space, 
um, you feel for her um, because she did, you know, it wasn't work that I support, but it's, she did work really hard uh, to, to, to wrestle this reality into existence and then was completely shut out of it. Um, but of course, then th- that's where the complex thing comes in because then it's like, well, but fuck all that. I mean, <laughs> like she's the worst. Everything is the worst. Like what, wh- like w- isn't she getting what she deserves shows her like she should have known that, um, that, you know, n- none of the men she was tirelessly working to, to prop up were actually gave a shit about her or her cause or anything. Um, they were just using her as a political tool and they were just wanted to get her, um, you know, her mailing, mailing list, list off, off yeah. her floppy disks and, and, and that was it. And she has been just as kind of used and tossed aside as Pamela is, as anybody is, any woman we've seen on this show. Um, and yeah, so I, I think, you know, I, I think it, I think to end on that note of ambivalence, you know, feeling something somewhat strongly on either side of it, uh, is the right tack for this show to take. I mean, it's not a hundred percent satisfying. You wish there could be some come to Jesus moment for Phyllis or someone would really tell her off in a way that Alice started to before again, the rest of the world intervened and they all had to, to evacuate the building. Um, but you know, there's no closure to this story. Um, and, uh, uh, so I think that ending on a note of defeat, but also persistence, um, pity but also revulsion uh is exactly the right way to say goodbye to this version of phyllis Lafley. yeah it's um the idea that like both bella and phyllis are like too divisive to be allowed into the halls of power um you know what i mean is is a really fascinating parallel that like once again like the show doesn't have to invent it's just there it's just all happened in 1979, 1980. It all happened at the same time. It was, it's true for all women at that time and now. Um, you know what I mean? This, this, um, I, I mean, like just, just coming off of this presidential primary <laughs> and watching like every single woman, female candidate, you know, be described as unlikable. Like, I'll just, it's still, it's here. It's still here. You know what I mean? It's not gone anywhere. And so I think, I think you're right. I think this story isn't over because I think the ending, especially with like, you know, the, the, the archive and contemporary footage that's used at the end of this episode is meant to galvanize us to, to, uh, to keep fighting, to fight more, to, um, use this as a, as an example of, uh, you know, what, what we, should not um, assume is done or assume can't be taken from us, you know? So, um, I, I want to talk to about like the literal final moments, right? Because, um, Phyllis, Phyllis gets his bad news. Um, her husband comes in and, and, and once again, I, I, I do appreciate the sort of like weird line that they walk with the Schlafly marriage and stuff like that. And so like, he is supportive. He's like, you were robbed. And I believe that he would genuinely say that to her, but also should we have some dinner? <laughs> Which she he doesn't, doesn't really fuss him that much. Yeah. And it also, it's, he's not saying like, get now get in the kitchen and make me dinner woman. But he is just saying like, this will make us feel better. Let's have some dinner that you will go make right now in our kitchen. And so like, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll go to Kate Blanchett in a second, but Kate, uh, Blanchett, like 
sort of called it back to the a back to the kitchen moment for Phyllis, right? She's she's in inescapably where she was trying to escape from. And um she mentioned uh the film Jean Dimon uh by Chantal Ackerman. Uh this is a sort of a very famous uh feminist film from the seventies um that ends with like <laughs> where uh you know it, it shows the, you know, this woman doing sort of this quotidian everyday stuff that involves sex work as well as sort of domesticity. Um, and she actually, she, she murders one of her Johns right at the end of the film. She kills him in this sort of moment of like feminist uprising or whatever. And then ends the film sitting. I mean, I, I think the framing of Phyllis sitting at the kitchen table is meant as an exact homage to that film. Um, where the protagonist is sitting at the dining room table just at the end, silently, uh, the camera's on her. Um, that film was actually, um, I almost mentioned it last week and I didn't, but it's actually playing in the background, uh, at one point as Alice is wandering around the, um, the Houston Convention Center. Um, but, uh, that uh, along with, uh, the music, which is, uh, the song Little Weaver Bird by Molly Drake, Nick Drake's mom, uh, which is this w- weird little curiosity of an album of songs that Molly Drake, uh, composed and, and sang in the fifties. So this idea of like back in the fifties, back in the kitchen, that is where Phyllis winds up after all of her hard work. There's nothing wrong with being in the kitchen. I like cooking in the kitchen. Like, let, let us not be misunderstood. We're not saying being in the kitchen is inherently wrong, but being restricted to the kitchen is what feels inherently wrong for a lot of women. And, um, and that's sort of where we see Phyllis put in her place. So I think it's a very, uh, a very fitting, not without its sympathies, but, um, also just sort of like a, uh, this is a defeat. This is a moment of defeat you know so uh, one thing about the the scene where she's you know in the kitchen paring the apples yeah um that i did realize that we have um at least improved some on in the last 40 years is that now when we're we're, we're all stuck in our kitchens making food we can listen to podcasts because <laughs> you know? she's sitting there in silence maybe she I could know. Turn on the radio but she could listen to still um, watching man yeah no i'm joking <laughs> but i mean I, I yeah again i think it's a complicated tricky sort of thing it, it's a point of it, it's it's a it is necessarily um a lot of sentiments at once jumbled into one scene um and i think that there is a read of it that's a little reductive maybe that like that, that, that there's a read of it that that says that the show the the ending of the show is a little reductive like the literalness of the kitchen and all that but um, I think that, uh, I think that there's a little bit more happening in the scene than, than, than that read would suggest. Um, and, and then to kind of follow up with, you know, archival footage of the real women involved in the show and, uh, you know, these kind of title cards explaining, uh, what, you know, sort of progress or lack thereof has been made, um, helps really ground it in the real world, um, in a way that I found uh, pretty moving. So let us hear from uh, Kate Blanchett herself about uh, this whole season and, and specifically that ending for Phyllis. Wow, let's do it. This is, this is it. We've come to the end of the road. Look, I know. It wasn't until I was told I was speaking to you about the last episode. I went, what? 
How did that happen? <laughs> How did we get here? Um, well, I, I want to start by asking a question that I asked both Stacy and Davi, which is um, this: the show could have ended with this sort of a, a victory for Phyllis, um, but it ends in a kind of per, a personal, a very real personal defeat for her. Uh, I'm wondering how important you feel like it was to show her in defeat uh, in this final episode. The history is always written by the victors, isn't it? And, and, and the victors are always very public about those victories. And the interesting thing, I think, about Phyllis's legacy is that her influence and achievements, dubious achievements, were absorbed by the men around her. And so in that way, even though she would never acknowledge this, and didn't ever acknowledge it, and she didn't ever proclaim that she had any disappointment in her life whatsoever. When one delves behind the public face of who people say they are, we're all human. And I think it was really important to show all the women that way, Phyllis included. And that what happened, whether Phyllis acknowledges or not, is that she didn't, she wasn't successful in any of her runs of Congress, nor, given that she was a political animal, was she ever successful in getting into um, the, the corridors of power. And I think that that was something that we felt that was really um, important to, I suppose, a really important connected line to, to form between all of the women, no matter what side of politics they, they, felt on, they fell on. So even though, in fact, um, you know, she won the she won the battle, she lost the war. I think that, that was a really um, a great place and a provocative place to leave, to leave an audience because then they go back and see the changes that were wrought by um, Phyllis and her supporters, even though the ERA um, was, was, was never ratified and, and those things that weren't achieved by the feminists and the things that were achieved, even though the ERA wasn't ratified. So, in fact, look, they fell, they fell um, very much... The experience of the women, no matter what side of politics they fell on, was kind of similar, and I think and the melancholic place that the women were left in um, uh, and the compromises that they had to make, there's a lot of similarities, I think. And that was something, I think, that we were striving to represent. I know we spoke, when we, when we talked about the first episode, we spoke a bit about um, how the making of the show changed changed your view or or informed your view on on certain things but i'm wondering now that we're headed towards the end of sharing this thing you've made with the world how does the reception of the show or has it in any way changed your perception of either the work itself or the era um what has been rewarding i think is is how engaged people seem um by, by the story and not not necessarily from a political perspective, but on a human level. Because um, in the end, it was about trying to find the points of intersection as well as pointing out the, the monumental differences between the, those who fell on both sides of, the, of um, what was such a caustic, toxic war over something so obvious and, and I would have hoped be banal in a way, the quality. Um, and so I've been really, I've been really buoyed up by how engaged people are. But also, there's a bit of sweet quality to to um, embracing that reaction because it does mean that people need to be told this story still. You know, and so you think, well, what? There's a lot that hasn't moved for people. You know, and that is certainly something. Watching this series inside the pandemic is the pandemic has revealed 
monumental inequalities that, that are still trenchant inequalities that still exist, not only between sexes, but between the haves and have-nots, between between citizens and immigrants and refugees, you know, it's and but I, I still think that, that the how relevant this story is is ultimately um it's that makes me feel quite melancholy, um, I guess. Yeah, you'd love to think it was a we were talking about a period of history that we'd learnt from and moved on from and that um, with with the reactions to each episode, I think it's it's very clear that there's a lot that has fundamentally hasn't shifted. And in fact, you know, a lot of a lot of uh, a lot of political beliefs have have um, calcified and 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 you know deepened. Yeah, I think a moment in this finale that really drives that home is when Phyllis is talking about it, she's inflating her her crowd size, which Davi told me was a real thing. But of course, you, yeah. can't, you can't help but think of, uh, you know, our our current commander in chief when, when you think of that. And for me also, I wanted to know why someone who is profoundly um, in, in, lived in profound fear of the, the communist threat and actually saw the, um, the Equal Rights Amendment as being um, part of a communist conspiracy to destabilize the American military, why someone like Bella Schlafly would support someone like Trump, who's obviously got business dealings with Russians. <laughs> I think all of that stuff, where you get that out of uh, at the end of the series, I think thrusts you very much into where we are now. And that hopefully um, that encourages people to, to not only delve back in time, and see to reverse engineer like we wanted to do, like to how we got here, but also we'll maybe look at where we are now with more informed, fresh eyes, you know, because we didn't just suddenly arrive here. It's been a gradual um, erosion, I think. I um, I know you all did a, a tremendous amount of, of studying of, of source material before you tackled the project. I myself, over the course of watching this show, have picked up one of Bella Abzug's books, I picked up The Sweetheart of the Silent Majority. But, it, it, you know, if you could recommend viewers to pick up one thing to sort of further their education or their relationship with this story, what what would you suggest that they, they read or watch? I think one of, the, one of the most useful books to me, apart from Sweetheart of the Silent Majority, um, because in terms of getting into Phyllis, because that was a, that was an authorized biography, um, and it's sort of it doesn't really fall on either side. Um, I would read the Divided Divide We Stand, which is the Marjorie Spurrell book, because I think that really clearly lays out um, the, the central tenets of the struggle and the um, and and I it's an intensely relevant book I think to read about um, you know American democracy today. Um, so I, I think that that it's a really great read. It's really you know impeccably written. So I think that's probably what I would. Read. But also, I think I, I would encourage them to watch Chantal Ackerman. Mm. Um, you know, there's, there's, you know, I think that that's uh, even though it's not about secondary feminism per se, it's um, there's something about the life that the the stillness of the life, you know, that I find. Um, and I still remember in high school reading uh, in the women's room. Um, yeah. And uh, but but I would say the Marjorie, I would say Marjorie the Marjorie Spurrell book was was a really really great read. Two of the the, the more perturbing moments for me um, in Phyllis's story um, was the moment where she slaps herself 
um, in an earlier episode. And then I think it's in that same episode where um, <laughs> you deliver this really chilling thank you, Daddy, uh, to, to Fred Schlafly, to, to John Slatter. Um, <laughs> Can you un- unpack those those <laughs> those moments for Phyllis and and sort of your performances of them, the slap and the thank you, Daddy? Well, when, originally when we were putting it together, the, the, we started off at six episodes, then it went to eight, and then it went to nine, and there were several flashbacks uh, in Phyllis's story, and there was just so much story, meta story, not not any one individual character arc, that, that it just felt right to jettison them. And when we were doing the the argument scene, it just I just did did, did the slap because it's somehow I guess because of all my reading about her and and reading about Phyllis's childhood, there sent there felt there was a lot of suppression of feeling, and that something that she said a lot in interviews that you you don't show your love for people by playing the guitar and writing love poetry, you show your love by doing for people. So I feel like there was a lot of I kind of reverse engineered that into her childhood and thought her mother worked seven days a week. You know, her father was probably profoundly depressed from being retrenched, but yet was still the, the, the quote unquote patriarch of the family. I think that there was probably not a lot of time for her emotions. Um, and I think that that's probably the way she parented. And I think it's the way her public persona was that she was un- unruffled by by things she didn't forever for she felt in a way she felt enervated if anyone started to, on the other side started to get emotional it gave her a lot of power in a, in a way so i think that her her own sense of emotion and her relationship to her emotional life and her right to feel sadness or grief and all of those things that my actor's brain just went it was that thing about shutting the door on all of those things and anything that went wrong was her fault and anything that was, you know, went well with her, with her, with her victory as well. Right. So it was just, I, I just thought it felt true to that stuff without going into um, any flashback to try and understand that. So I hope it gave something. Oh, absolutely! Of a, a, it was very, very disturbing, and in in a in a way that really enriches the story. I think. Um, the in this finale episode, uh, Phyllis absolutely makes a ch- she makes this choice, maybe that she would already made long ago, um, to definitely go with Reagan over Phil Crane. Um, there's this conversation, mm-hmm. this last conversation she has with Phil Crane. Uh, what in your mind is is Phyllis deciding in that moment, in that last conversation with Phil, when he sort of reveals some aspects of his of his sexual proclivities, um, etc. I I think when you've climbed up the ladder, you you could have you could, you could be more selective about who your friends are in a political sense, and I think in that moment she's she's always you know she's always um you know we in the very first episode we 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 batted back and forth the whole thing about whether she was going to say to him please stop touching my arm. You know, because he's obviously just always gently touching her in the way that women are often touched, which you find annoying, but you just rise on top of. And in the end, you get to the last episode and you think, I don't really need to deal with you anymore because I don't like you. You're not the moral man that I would choose to associate with. Um, and so in a way, that, that is a, that's a friendship that's run its course. 
And when I say friendship, it's got big inverted commas around it. Right. So I think it's, um, in, a, in a way, Phyllis is, is for that moment in, when, in which she's feeling empowered um, and, and she's holding all the cards. She can play the more masculine role of saying, I'm done with that relationship. You know, which is normally, it's normally inverted. And the irony, of course, is that then she ends up being treated, you know, shown the door because she's no longer useful because she's too polarizing. Right. Um, so Reagan took her, Reagan took her mailing list, but um, he, he didn't want the, you know, the negative associations with her. But it happened in the 90s with, um, with a very polarizing female figure in, in, um, in Australian politics, a grassroots, very different character to, to Phyllis called Pauline Hanson, who um, started what was called the One Nation Party. And the then Prime Minister, um, John Howard, I was thinking, why is he not shutting her down? Because her language is so xenophobic and ill-informed and inflammatory. And I now realise, of course, what he was doing was he was letting her hang herself politically, but not, 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 not necessarily shutting the door on her supporters. But when she did hang herself politically, he, would, he hoovered all her supporters up. Wow. And so I think that that's what often happens to polarizing figures in politics like Phyllis is that they, they become the mouthpiece and, and enliven and provoke a whole swathe of fear-filled, um, you know, um, rhetoric and the boys up our, our, you know, our, our base ourselves. Yet the person in charge doesn't need to speak to that, but they can actually absolutely welcome in those followers. And I think that that's a very similar space that, that Phyllis found herself in, ironically. I don't know if you feel... I've heard some performers talk about this. I don't know if you feel this way, that um, occasionally they'll they'll miss a character that they put away. Is there anything about playing uh, or, or inhabiting Phyllis that, that you miss? She was a quintessential outsider. I mean, she was outside the political system. She was, you know, being a mother of six and being so passionate about... I don't think she had a lot of close friends. Um, and I don't think she organized... While she galvanized a lot of uh, women through language of fear, she didn't. It was a very pyramidical structure. So I found it intensely lonely, if I'm honest, to play Phyllis. Uh, Profoundly lonely. Um, Even though surrounded by gorgeous women, you know, wonderful, had, you know, wonderful John Flattery as my is my partner in crime and, <laughs> and you know, Jim Triplehorn and Sarah and Melanie, you know, like everyone. It was, it, it was great. It was lonely, really lonely. And so I don't miss that at all, to be honest. I would look, I would look at the, the rushes of the feminists and think, oh, my goodness, <laughs> look at the fun they're all having. You know? <laughs> um, so there's not a lot that I miss. And I don't miss living with fear and paranoia and... Um, to spend one's life trying to prevent people from living their lives. Um, I, it's a very negative space, to be honest. I would imagine that would be a character you'd be happy to put away. But um, the, uh, yeah. yeah, the, um, you, me- you mentioned watching the, the, the rushes of the feminist uh, scenes. And I did have a question here for you about um, if there was one moment of the series that, that you weren't acting in, um, but watching it, you know, in, in the vein of, of producer or even as an audience member, you know, one thing that you most wish you could have been a part of uh, in the series that you weren't. I, I love all of the scenes between um, Margot and Rose. And it went where we have, how we'd organized sets 
were um, in, in Toronto where we were filming was that Bella Abzug's and Gloria's apartment was was divided by a corridor and then there was a, a Schlafly's dining room and kitchen. And so every time I'd walk onto set, I'd just want to veer left and sit <laughs> in Bella Abzug's sofa and walk into in, and lie on Gloria's bed and then I had to turn right and that's not intended. And go into the go go into the kitchen. Um, and I really felt that most acutely. I think when I played that last scene, which was a bit of an homage to Jean Dielman, the Chantal Ackerman film, um, uh, into the kitchen. And I'm thinking, I really am turning far, far to the right, and um, leaving so much um, potential sisterhood behind. All right, that does it for our journey through uh, Mrs. America, Richard. I mean, until September. <laughs> Where can folks find you? Well, I mean, they kind of took my idea for an anti-feminist Gilbert and Sullivan parody, so I kind of have to throw all that out <laughs> um, and start writing a new musical because Broadway is going to come back and they're going to need shows. Uh, and I figure, um, why not finally make my true political leanings known in musical theater form? Um, so I'll be working on that. I will be as ever, uh, on Little Gold Men, our other podcast, which you'll be popping in, in at least once, uh, during the summer, uh, and reviewing and doing all manner of other things. Uh, actually writing something of a little feature on, uh, one of the ancillary actors on this show i won't tell you who but uh look forward to that and um yeah i mean i know where you're gonna be you're gonna be slaving over a typewriter uh doing the book thing which i have done it's miserable well have fun and your your and yours actually requires research i'm told allegedly uh yeah i'll I'll be on book leave i'll be doing that um you can yeah please don't deprive yourself of richard's voice you can hear him over on little gold men you will enjoy that i also i pre-recorded a bunch of interviews for little gold men so i'll you know you'll you'll hear me talking to some folks over there across the summer so yeah listen to that podcast it's a great podcast katie rich mike hogan richard lawson holding 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 it down for little gold men over the summer um and we'll be back in September. You'll find me avoiding working on my book by tweeting at Joe wrote this. And um, until the fall, uh, we don't have a like catchphrase. I want to be like, stay tuned, keep watching, something like that. Yeah, stay America. <laughs> <laughs> Great. <laughs>